I think for a lot of us who've experienced disordered eating, it takes up so much space in our lives. It is a life thief. It really usurps our time, our mental energy, like the space we have in our brains to devote to other things. And what happens when that goes away or when that dissipates? What do we do with that extra mental space and time and energy? And, and is that scary? Welcome to Let It Out with me, your host, Katie Dalebout. This week, back on the podcast, part two of my conversation with my dear friend and mentor, Christy Harrison. She's a registered dietitian, certified eating disorder specialist, journalist, host of the weekly podcast, Food Psych. And her first book, Anti-Diet, came out last year, and she's currently writing her new book, which will be out in 2023, which is very exciting. She's more than 18 years of experience working in food and nutrition media. As a journalist, she's written for the New York Times, Self, Refinery29, Gourmet, Slate, so many more. And she's been covered by numerous publications, including the Washington Post and Wired. This conversation is a follow-up to last week. So if you didn't listen to last week, you might want to go back and start there. We talk about discomfort, accepting it, her complicated IVF experience, productivity, seasons of overwhelm, meditation as a tool to get through discomfort. We talk about rooting and pain and compassion. But this part, part two, as I always say when we split these episodes into two parts, I believe this podcast really takes shape in act two when we've been recording for so long that we have to take a bathroom break or get up or stretch or my limbs are falling asleep. That's when we get a little bit loose. And the topics this time included emotional eating. We talk about eating alone. I talk about how I have a lot of shame in my eating habits, like eating standing up and in my kitchen with the refrigerator door open and we get into the first season of Food Psych and how it's really different from what she's doing now, but those topics of shame with eating are really present in that season of Food Psych. So we touch on that. We touch on eating disorder recovery and how the pandemic impacts eating disorders and body image. We talk about the anti-diet movement, body image and pregnancy because Christy is about to have a baby super soon and postpartum and body image. And then we really get into anorexia nostalgia and photo nostalgia. I wrote this essay for Refinery29 that perhaps is how you found me. A lot of people find me from that essay and it's an eating disorder side effect that not a lot of people talk about, but is something that I've experienced again and again and again and experience in new ways now that I'm older and my body is changing, not just in size and fluctuating cyclically and over time, but also, you know, starting to notice for the first time in my life, I'm still quite young, 
but aging <laughs> and the discomfort that comes with that. So we get into all of that and more in this week's episode. If you want to learn more about me and my work, as well as Christy's work, stick around to the end. I am doing a few workshops. So if you want to journal with me, I have a resolution reframe <laughs> workshop, as well as a comfort and journaling workshop for the holidays. So those will be linked in this episode, as well as everything that Christy shares. She's incredible. I'm so grateful for her. And I just want to say on the record at the top, she's one of the most supportive, kind people to me. And um, I'm, I'm so emotional even talking about it, but I love her and I'm really glad you're here and I love you. Thank you for listening. Enjoy this conversation and I will talk to you at the end. We both had experiences of dating someone who helped us with this part of flexibility of like, all right, well, I need to be cool around this person. And so I'm going to just eat the thing. And I think the more I've done that and the more, you know, normal eaters I've been around or intuitive eaters or people who are just not as steeped in diet culture as me, the the easier the flexibility piece becomes. And this is something that I, I wanted to ask you as a follow-up from our conversation in May of 2020, which was early, early pandemic. We know now we talked about food and eating and you know, it's something that at that time, obviously, a lot of people were cooking at home more and talking about it. And I remember asking you about it, and and something that you said back then was, you know, not every meal has to be a, a taste sensation. And you know, you were talking about eating more canned foods and like kind of what you had around. And I'm curious in terms of flexibility, but also not even just with that. I'm kind of changing the subject, but I'm curious where you think a year and a half into the pandemic, what the pandemic and the aftermath has done and will do for the anti-diet movement? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I think I, I've seen a real uptick in interest in the anti-diet movement through the pandemic. And I think part of that is like people spending more time online or spending more time reading books and having more bandwidth to like really delve into it, but also just the weight stigma that has come out of the pandemic and the food stigma, you know, the food shaming and the sort of aspirational food stuff that was so um, prevalent in the early days of the pandemic of like, look at this beautiful bread I made or whatever. And, um, and the sort of like class distinctions there too, of who's, who is able to stay at home and bake bread all day versus like, who's going to essential worker jobs to make sure we have the ingredients for bread, you know, like I think a lot of that laid the groundwork for more interest in anti-diet, the anti-diet movement, intuitive eating. And I think also like the pandemic really caused a huge uptick in disordered eating and eating disorders. You know, there's statistics that calls to the National Eating Disorders Association helpline went up by a, a really huge percentage. I'm forgetting the exact number now, but it was really significant. And that, you know, hospitalizations for eating disorders have increased. A lot of clinicians who treat disordered eating and eating disorders are reporting extremely long waiting lists and, and huge upticks in new clients throughout the pandemic. Um, and so it's clear that people are really struggling or have been really struggling with their relationships with food in this time. And I think during any time of uncertainty and upheaval and really like 
worldwide trauma that's happening because of this pandemic. Um, it's understandable that people's relationships with food would suffer as as well as a consequence. And, you know, add on top of that the the glaring weight stigma that has been getting fomented by, you know, some scientific studies, but then media that picks up on that and people commenting on those studies, you know, even though it's still such early stage preliminary research showing that there seems to be some sort of increased risk for COVID um, in larger body people. But I've done a lot of research on, you know, reading of the scientific research on that and written about this and spoken about it a lot um, throughout the pandemic, showing that, you know, this, this science is not airtight, it's not hard and fast, and there's actually other science showing the opposite, that there's some studies showing that people who are higher weight actually have lower mortality risk from COVID, and there's not an increased risk of hospitalization or severe cases. And so I think, you know, that science is very nuanced and still has to be unpacked. And I think the role of weight stigma in treatment for COVID is playing a huge role that hasn't fully been um, acknowledged or even, you know, scratched the surface of in the scientific research. Anyway, all of that being said, like, I think all of that context is definitely sort of driving more interest in anti-diet culture and helping people start to explore and heal their relationships with food. So, yeah, it's been interesting from that perspective. I mean, as much as the economic crisis created by the pandemic has exacerbated food insecurity and been so harmful to so many people. I think there's also this other piece, you know, the, maybe it's a different kind of group of people who've been activated and awakened to the need for healing their relationships with food. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. I Something I, I constantly worry about and I think Isabel, our friend that we keep mentioning, Isabel Fax-Duke, I think she was the first person to mention this to me and I hadn't thought about it, but I was like always so happy and optimistic having people like you two and many others that have been on our podcast as mentors in this feeling like we're moving forward in what we're talking about essentially of like intuitive eating and movement actually, and the whole movement of anti-diet culture. Right. But then she was saying, you know, well, this is a trend right now. Like this is a trend and it'll swing the opposite direction at some point, just like fashion or just like other things. And that always, I always kind of like felt that looming and wondering if, you know, these things won't, people won't be as excited about them in some way. And I, I don't think it's as, you know, it's not as fickle as like fashion trends, but I think things that are popular, they have a dip and up and down, and maybe the pandemic has a positive impact on that. And I think this episode with Dan Harris that you were a guest on and you being on, you know, this pretty mainstream, very popular podcast is a good sign of that. And it was really, really wonderful. And I've sent it to so many people. I listened to it twice, even though like I like I said, I do feel like I have a pretty good intellectual understanding of this being steeped in it for so many years, but it's a really important topic. And I was happy to 
re-listen to some things I knew and learn more like I always do and re-remember things. And I'm so happy that it was there for a bigger audience. And obviously, you were such an amazing guest. But I also really appreciated... And to this point that we're talking about with the the trend towards this, I really admire his vulnerability in sharing his personal experience with body image and intrusive thoughts around his body. And I think everyone, you know, should should go back and and listen to that episode and and check out your course of of course. <laughs> but I transcribed a, a little bit of his intro, and I want to read it now and just discuss it a little bit. But he says. My inner weather can have outer consequences. Maybe I start frantically counting calories, or maybe I'm so caught up in obsessing about food, I'm barely present with what matters. And maybe I get so in the habit of beating myself up that I extend that aggression to other people in my orbit. So essentially, he's talking about judgment. I loved his self-awareness here. And I think it's a result of your work and intuitive eating and the result that intuitive eating had on him as someone who has been doing it for a while, which he goes into. And it is my experience too, that I am definitely not fun to be around when I am dieting. And when I'm in my eating disorder, I am not as kind. I'm not a compassionate person when I'm dieting because it makes me very self-absorbed and preoccupied at all times. And in your book, Anti-Diet, you talk about how dieting steals your life. It steals your time. It steals your money. I make a cameo in the money part. But I always say like <laughs> my cameo could have been in any of the parts <laughs> because mm -hmm. it's a real life thief, which is really, really sad. And We've talked about this before, but I think there's some sort of, I keep saying self-honesty, but there's also like a surrender and almost a feeling of maybe even a, a spiritual connection or something that for me has been required in, in my own healing. And so I think it's really cool and full circle that your intuitive eating course is with this meditation app. And I'm just curious if you could talk about this and how surrender and acceptance have to be part of the process of embodying intuitive eating and anti-diet to take it beyond this intellectual understanding alone that someone can have just from hearing this conversation or reading your book. Oh my gosh, there's so much good stuff there. Yeah, I feel like surrender and acceptance are a huge part of this, especially acceptance for, you know, our bodies, the ways that we eat that might not be in line with what diet culture tells us we need to be doing. Acceptance for what comes up when the disordered eating starts to fade, you know, because I think for a lot of us who've experienced disordered eating, it takes up so much space in our lives. It is a life thief. It really usurps our time, our mental energy, like the space we have in our brains to devote to other things. And what happens when that goes away or when that dissipates? What do we do with that extra mental space and time and energy? And, and is that scary? I, I remember feeling very sort of unmoored at first when starting to do this work because as the disordered eating, the constant thoughts of food and body started to wane was like, what other thoughts are bubbling up to replace that? You know, there was always something. And then a lot of it was stuff I didn't really want to look at or wasn't, I was like, oh God, wow, this is here. You know, this is problematic. And now I'm faced with having to deal with this, which I think is 
you know, a consequence of the fact that disordered eating can be a coping mechanism for many of us, even if it is, you know, ultimately really detrimental. I think it has this positive impact that is why we were attracted to it in the first place, you know, that even though the risks far outweigh the benefits, ultimately, there's this reason that we start, we were attracted to it. And so, yeah, I think the sort of ability to let go and coming back to what we were talking about earlier, sitting with discomfort, right? Learning to sit with a discomfort that comes up as we let go of disordered eating. And for people who are, especially, you know, those in larger bodies or who are marginalized in other ways, I think there's some very real stigma that that people have to deal with in the world related to their weight or other identities that, um, you know, it's not just all like mental stuff. It's actually, there's real world consequences to this too. And so having to um, be resilient to that and sort of learn strategies for navigating that and having compassion for yourself and, you know, being sort of understanding of the fact that you might circle back a number of times to those old coping mechanisms because it is so painful to be exposed to weight stigma and discrimination based on, you know, whatever characteristics about you. It's not easy. It's not an easy fix to just give that up and start eating intuitively, you know, for even for people with a lot of privilege, a lot of body privilege and economic privilege and all those things, it can take years. You know, it took me probably a good eight to 10 years to really click back into intuitive eating once I started trying to recover. And for those who struggled longer, who had really significant trauma histories around, you know, I have a trauma history as well, but not around food and body stuff. So, you know, I think it made it easier for me to heal my relationship with food and my body because that wasn't a locus of trauma for me. And so I think for people who do have that as a locus of trauma where, you know, their relationships with food and their bodies were interfered with and fucked with from a very young age, it can be a much harder road to get back to intuitive eating and a peaceful relationship with food. So I think having a an anchoring point like meditation, and I will say, speaking of trauma, that like for those of us with trauma histories, meditation can sometimes be very scary and paying attention to the breath or closing your eyes or sort of not being as attuned to your surroundings is is tough, you know, with, with for people with trauma histories and who have really active nervous systems that are on high alert all the time. Also, meditation is a helpful tool for bringing down the nervous system, for helping to self-regulate. Um, and so finding forms of meditation that are helpful, like I think about Resma Menachem's um, meditations that he teaches. Cultural somatics is his practice and philosophy, which sort of incorporates the sense of the trauma-informed aspects of understanding that people are going to be hypervigilant, might might have a hard time closing their eyes and focusing on their breath and just paying attention to those things in the way that someone who do, who isn't as activated might not have as much of an issue with. So, you know, finding the forms of meditation that work for you or other, you know, somatic skills and tools that might be useful for reconnecting to your to your body. But I think for me personally, just in my own healing, I think psychotherapy has been such a huge key, but specifically psychotherapy that was grounded in somatics, that was grounded in like sensory motor, you know, psychotherapy was a huge, huge help to me. And 
mindfulness practice and incorporating the body, incorporating awareness of the body, I think I couldn't have gotten to where I am now if it weren't for those things, you know, and meditation was a, a huge part of that too. But I think just any sort of mind-body awareness practice can fill that role and help bring down the nervous system and help with self-regulation, with sitting with uh, discomfort and, you know, navigating the ups and downs of our inner and outer worlds. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I, I'm one of those people. I relate to being incredibly privileged in many of the ways that all of the ways that you mentioned, and yet still had so many ups and downs with this. I, I think I'm, I haven't done as much somatic and trauma therapy. You, you've mentioned it before, and it's something that I, I know I have some unpacking and, and work there. And I think this is related to emotional eating, which I believe really needs a, a rebrand, you know, of mm-hmm. it's one coping mechanism of many and not bad. And, you know, I, I want to talk about that a little bit because I think with what you're saying around trauma and being able to sit with discomfort, there are times to soothe yourself and there are times to solve and meditation, intuitive meditation, emotional eating, um, turning to our phones. Like there's all these coping mechanisms that we can go to. So with meditation, the times I was mentioning that I've gone through not being able to do it was when I felt most uneasy and most like I, I didn't want to sit with myself. It was scary to do so. And I didn't want to be in my body. I wanted to detach. I wanted to turn to my phone, turn to another person, turn to having another snack or whatever it is, because I didn't want to sit with it. And so I think that's it's just really great how you articulated all of that. And going back to the interview with Dan Harris, he he talks about eating in front of the TV and and not eating breakfast and and kind of getting into the is this okay intuitive eating wise and it's a it's a very sweet part of the conversation but i have this tendency that similarly i don't love and i want to bring up here because i think i'm not alone and i'm going to illustrate it with with a story and i think this is actually related to to something that i don't think we have time to really get into today, but I I will just say this out loud for us to pin this for later when we talk about when, you know, after you have the baby and you're on for (laughs) another time, maybe talking about the next book. But I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of eating disorders and diet culture and friendship and dating and connection, because these things, as you know, from being my friend, I have had a lot of real highs. And within those highs, my patterning with eating changes in a way that's really not great. And also with lows, I I have a tendency when I'm, you know, when my depression is really high, unlike some people with depression who tend to eat less, I'm, I'm usually eating more during those times. And having you as a friend and a lot of people in my life that I can talk to about this is really helpful. And I think that piece of the Dan Harris podcast felt like that. It felt like almost this friend moment of like, let me check out this part of what I'm doing and kind of have a have a gut check here. So 
this is mine where I had this interesting experience where I saw my friend Michelle post on Instagram and it was something of the effect where she was saying, I find myself when my husband's out of town working really late and then standing in the kitchen eating cold pasta over the sink. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's my everyday, right? Of like living (laughs) alone. And my version of that or my version of Dan Harris is eating pretzels in front of the TV is I often will eat standing up, refrigerator door open. And I don't love that. Like it doesn't feel good. It bums me out. And I know that there are a lot of, you know, parts of this of like eat more during the day and like have a like have snacks. So you don't go to the kitchen so hungry, but that's not possible every day. And I try to focus on it and not do it, but it happens a lot. And then, you know, the part I really don't like is how I do a little bit beat myself up or judge myself. And, and I realize it's not just this. Like I also judge myself in similar ways when I am on my phone longer than I want to be when I like, anytime I do something, I don't really want to be doing. So I guess it's, you know, I, I wanted to share that story and then I sort of get your take on it. Of There was something else that intuitive eating mentions of, you know, when you can eating meals with people and, and mindful eating, but yeah, I would just love kind of your thoughts on on all of that. Yeah, such a good question. And and uh, I think there's so many ways in which we're like driven to eat in ways that are not as pleasurable or satisfying as they could be that are just like by necessity that I think we have to like not beat ourselves up for, you know, and and getting so hungry that you're like you end up just eating in front of the fridge. I can very much identify with that from, you know, times past. I think similarly to your friend, Michelle, I, you know, my husband does most of the cooking and really takes care of me through food, like really makes sure that I have what I need when I need it. And, you know, he's been home like most of the time during the pandemic and his industry, you know, he's, he's wasn't going back to the office anytime soon or to, to like in-person work anytime soon. And so, um, it was really nice to have him home. Now he's back to work more and I'm having to like figure it out more, but even so there's still a lot of, a lot of meals where, you know, food will just magically show up for me. And I'm really, really lucky and grateful for that. And when I don't have that, you know, I have noticed that I tend to overwork more, like push it back more, even, even, you know, holding my pee, like not going to the bathroom when I need to, you know, and that does sort of drive this sense of like urgency about eating, like, okay, what am I going to have that I can just get in quickly? And I think, you know, a lot of us do that. Right. And so I think looking at like looking at that with compassion, A, and saying like, well, you know, it may not be the ideal way to eat. It may not be what I exactly want to do, but I'm getting my needs met. Right. I'm, I'm figuring it out and taking care of myself through food, maybe not in the most elegant way or the way that I wish I could, but I'm doing it. And that's something that's huge, you know, to be able to just get, get it done in whatever way we have to. And looking at like, what are the conditions in my life, you know, with compassion, like looking at what are the conditions in my life that are making me feel like I have to, you know, push it this long and 
overwork and and not nourish myself when I need to? And um, is there anything there that sort of needs attention, right? And sometimes there's not not anything we can change about that, but just kind of being aware and knowing like, okay, this is a season in my life when I have a lot of deadlines. This is a season in my life when I'm really overwhelmed, when I'm doing too much and I'm, I kind of know I'm taking on too much, but it's for a limited time or it's for this reason or it's, you know, because I need the money, right? Like there's the economic reasons I think for many people are very, very real of having to work multiple jobs and having to push self-care kind of to the wayside in order to make ends meet. Like that's, that's real. And that's a factor, you know, that's, that's a consequence of capitalism that I think none of us can really solve at the individual level. There might be some ways we can try to take care of ourselves within that context and within that system. But, you know, there are larger systems at play here, forcing us to overwork, forcing us to put self-care on the back burner, to, take care of other things and other people first. And so I think just being compassionate with yourself and being clear with yourself around like what those reasons are and whether there's whether there are some things that maybe you can let go of that you don't need to be doing, right? If you don't need to be pushing yourself, you know, I have like, for me, I'm thinking of my days of the week are very sectioned off. It's like I have my newsletter writing day and then I have my book writing days and I have the days where like part of the day is devoted to press and interviews and stuff like that. And I get sort of like thrown off if I don't finish the certain thing on its assigned day. Cause then I'm like, Oh no, that's going to have to bleed over into the next day, but then I'm going to lose writing time or I'm going to lose time for this thing or whatever. But starting to be a little more flexible around that and say, you know what? I don't have to push myself to finish this newsletter tonight. It's eight o'clock. I need to eat some dinner. I'm just going to do it tomorrow morning. And figure out the rest of the week accordingly. So like, is there anything that's sort of on your plate that you can let go of that's like that, where it's like, I've given myself this deadline or I've become very rigid about this particular thing that maybe I don't need to be as rigid around and how can I give myself more space and grace to take care of myself through food? And then just being realistic about like the conditions in your life right now and whether sometimes you might need to eat in front of the fridge standing up and that's okay. You're doing the best you can. You're getting your food needs met. And intuitive eating has never been about perfection. You know, it's not a perfectionistic pursuit. It's about taking care of yourself through food to the best of your abilities, whatever your circumstances are, and doing that without the incursion of diet culture interfering in a relationship with food. So if it means eating in front of the fridge, or if it means having to figure out a food pantry or something, if you're, if you're food insecure, or if it means, you know, whatever it looks like for you in your life, I think that's intuitive eating for you at this time, right? It doesn't have to be this picture of perfection where you're always eating exactly what you want and getting exquisite pleasure out of every, every bite, you know? Which is another way I think people turn intuitive eating into a diet or really diet culture turns intuitive eating into a diet is like this idea, like you were saying earlier, of like it has to be quote unquote worth it. That's not 
really intuitive eating. Because yes, we want to seek pleasure and satisfaction, and that can be such a great driving force in our relationships with food. And there's so many circumstances where we can't, for whatever reason, get exactly what we want or even really close to what we want. And so we just have to do the best we can to take care of ourselves with food because what's the alternative? Restricting, right? And, and deprivation. And that is very much antithetical to intuitive eating. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sharing these stories, I think hearing Dan say the pretzels in front of the TV helped me. Hearing people talk about what they do, like reading Michelle's post really helped me. And it did so by, you know, we see people eating at the table all the time and eating alone is like a, a whole thing. And I, it is very dysregulating living alone. I, I was recently watching my friend's dog and even having a dog around was regulating to me of having, you know, another human, not human, another <laughs> being that I, that woke up at a certain time and I had to feed twice a day. Like that is even good for me. Right. And until recently, I've always lived with other people and it is, pretty dysregulating. And I, I, I never had that problem of, as you know, this summer I was living with people in a house and I never ever ate standing up in the kitchen with the refrigerator door open, not once. So I just think it's good to talk about these things. This week's episode is brought to you by Acorn TV. As it gets colder, I'm really enjoying snuggling up, cozy on the couch, watching some TV on my computer. I think I'm actually going to get a projector, especially when shows are must watch and you want to get to the end and know what happens, like what I'm finding on Acorn TV. I hadn't heard of Acorn TV before, but Acorn TV is the largest commercial-free British streaming service that features compelling stories, exclusive premieres, and originals that you won't find anywhere else. With Acorn TV, there's always something new to discover. It has hundreds of exclusive shows from around the world, including award-winning mysteries, dramas, comedies, and so much more. From production to performances, the series that you'll find on Acorn TV are exceptional and refreshing because they're cleverly written and visually striking and feature renowned actors that I think you'll really like. My friend Zoe's dad is British and she loves good mysteries. So we've been watching some mysteries. There's this show called Finding Alice that we really like. And there's another one called Midsummer's Murder. There's so much good stuff in here. And I'm excited to, to try some more things. I think you'll probably really like it too. There's genuinely so much here, something for everybody. Give it a go. You'll get thousands of hours of new, enthralling content on Acorn TV for a fraction of the cost compared to most streaming services. It's just $5.99 a month, which I really love. And there's so many movies and series that I don't find anywhere else. I kind of like having an alternative to other platforms and it's really cool and cozy like i said try acorn tv for free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use my promo code let it out but you have to use the promo code in all lowercase letters that's a c o r n dot tv code let it out 
in lowercase, to get your first 30 days for free. This week's episode is brought to you by Prisoner Wine. Wine is like fine art. It can be good, it can be bad, and every once in a while, it can be truly transcendent. Introducing the Prisoner Wine Company. The Prisoner Wine Company insists on doing things differently. Like 20 years ago, when they decided to combine some of California's best and most unusual grape varieties to make a bold and complex blend, aka their namesake wine, the Prisoner Red Blend. From the shape and weight of the bottle to the label, every detail is striking and memorable. We love striking and memorable. The wine is smooth, rich, and approachable. We love approachable here. And now the Prisoner Wine Company will ship all of their rule-bending blends like the Prisoner Red Blend, the Prisoner Chardonnay, and the Thon Moreau direct to your door. I love this wine. I've been drinking it. It's really great. My friends like it. I think you all will really like it too. The Prisoner is one of Napa Valley's most recognized red blends, and the Prisoner Wine Company has been featured in Wine Spectacular, Forbes, and Food and Wine. You have to experience these wines for yourself. Try one bottle, and you will taste and see that the Prisoner Wine Company is good. I think you're really going to like it. Go to theprisonerwine.com slash let it out for 20% off plus shipping included on your first purchase. Get it in time for the holidays. This is the best deal they have available. Get 20% off plus shipping included at theprisonerwine.com slash let it out. That's theprisonerwine.com slash let it out. Offer valid on first-time online orders only for U.S. residents of legal drinking age through 12-31-2021. Other exclusions may apply. Please enjoy wines responsibly. I read this article. It got me thinking. Michelle's post got me thinking a lot about secret single behaviors. It's a title of an episode of Sex in the City where, you know, I think Carrie is moving in with Aiden and and she's talking about, you know, all these things she's going to have to like let go of with like living with someone and blah, blah, blah. And they all start talking about these secret behaviors. And there's this, I always remembered how Carrie said I used to eat crackers or actually I didn't remember this, but my friend Patty brought it up, but she would eat saltine crackers stacked up with grape jelly, reading fashion magazines, hunched over the sink. And everybody sort of has their own secret single behaviors or things you would maybe eat by yourself that you wouldn't eat with other people. And and I think that, you know, that's, that's fine and, and good to know about, because I think just knowing that people are not, you know, quote unquote, perfect or don't eat in a, a, a way that's like so beautiful is really cool. And that is actually beautiful to me because there's this article that, that someone wrote, a couple of years ago about secret single behaviors. And, and it, I remember the first line of it being like, I have a hard rule for myself that I don't ever eat standing up. And she was like, I do all these other weird things. Like I talk to my cats and I do, you know, whatever. And I was like, Oh, that's a rule I should have. Like, is it bad? I do that all the time. I eat like mostly standing. I mean, you know, so I think just normalizing these things and saying, this is the thing I do. And I I'm telling you is, is important. 
Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I, I think about my first season of Food Psych when it was totally different than what yeah. it is now, but it was like, you know, looking at these ways that we all have sort of fraught relationships with food and we all like think we're weird or think we're, or do, or do things that other people might think were weird or whatever that I wanted to help people like be open about and sort of release the shame about because I had so many of those things too myself and had this disordered history with food. And I think, yeah, talking about those behaviors can be really cathartic and sort of unifying and sort of help us recognize we're not alone, we're not bad or weird for having these behaviors. And that actually there is some beauty to that, you know, to like standing up and eating in front of the fridge as a way to just get your needs met. Like that's so human. That's so understandable. And, you know, so yeah, I think we have to have compassion for ourselves with things like that. And I just have so much compassion for you for like the, the, you know, wanting to beat yourself up or thinking you shouldn't be doing it or thinking you should have a rule against it. Like I can totally remember times in my life when I was berating myself for similar things. And, you know, it's just not, it's just such a time suck, really. It's not worth beating ourselves up over. Yeah, absolutely. And and that season of food psych was so formative to me. And I really believe that talking about all of this and, and that's something Christy, you know, as we wrap up, I really admire about you and your work is that your story and your vulnerability and your honesty sharing helps me to understand some concepts that are scientific or, you know, historical in a way that I probably wouldn't because you're so open. And as I mentioned, you know, Dan Harris being open and, you know, our friend Isabella and all these people who I have learned from in this space, they've inspired me to be open to because, you know, that's the whole point of, of this podcast is that I believe when we let out what we're hiding, when, what we're ashamed of, what we're, you know, essentially holding in, we have to manage and it's very difficult to connect. And when we connect, the shame dissipates when we share it, as Brene Brown says. And that's why I was talking to you in our voice text exchange recently, how I'm like, oh my God, I want to scrub the internet for all of my presence. And I, I've shared so much over the years and a lot about my eating disorder. And you know, what's interesting is to talk about body image a, a little bit my eating disorder recovery essay that I wrote in the same column that we were mentioning where Christy wrote about gluten a couple of years ago, it was in Refinery29 for Kelsey Miller's column. And it is still to this day how most people find me, like maybe like 90% of people find me. And it's about anorexia nostalgia I wrote it when I was 23, I think 23 or 24. And it's about body image, right? It's about like I accidentally or not quite accidentally with a lot of control and uh, <laughs> mental energy what inhabited a body that I wasn't meant to inhabit, right? Like I was at a weight that I wasn't meant to be at. And in that weight, got a lot of compliments on the way down, right? When I wasn't like scarily underweight. 
I still was underweight, but it fit into a ideal where I got a lot of compliments and feedback from people that was positive, which made it very addictive. And then it got to a place where it was a bit annoying because it was you know, just scary, right? To people. And it wasn't fun anymore for me. But in that, on the way down and the way back up, there was this... I was in this body where my the number on my clothing was lower, right? And so having been there, when I'm not there and I'm susceptible to, to poor body image, having been there before, I, I want to go back to it. And so anyway, I think that essay would be very different now because... At that time, I hadn't experienced aging at all. And I'm still very young, but I've experienced aging and, and more transitions and, and going back to talking about everything we've talked about today with, with pain and discomfort and what you're going through of being further ahead of me in a lot of this stuff and having a baby, right? Like being in your body and actually bringing someone, it, it just feels very related to me with this of the nostalgia we feel for not only physically being in a size that we weren't meant to be in or that for for some of us it's it's maybe not as extreme as what i'm saying like i think people can have diet nostalgia right for like just mildly dieting so their size is different or age nostalgia right of like you were smaller when you were younger and then now you're not due to whatever or you're before you had wrinkles or before whatever it is and i think that part of body image and the fact that so many people still talk about that essay just and based on everything we were talking about just feels incredibly relevant and there's like a melancholy to that and also the whole reason i brought it up is because i feel like it's important to talk about because it's it is a side effect of eating disorders and diet culture that people maybe don't lead with and i think it's really common and and important in the same way of talking about how i eat standing up in the kitchen or you know those sorts of habits to normalize that it's something that that more people feel yeah to release the shame around it i think yeah. that's really really important it's funny i hadn't thought about that essay in years but you bringing it up now is interestingly timely because I've been feeling, you know, as my body has changed throughout pregnancy and changed pretty significantly. And I'm like, I don't know if I'll go back to wearing the same clothes. I don't know if I'll go back to looking the same and having that same privilege that I had before, you know, and even having to like see myself in videos and stuff as I promote various things or when I did the anti-diet challenge for 10% Happier, it's like, coming up against this new level of body acceptance, you know, and knowing that my body's doing something amazing and I'm so like grateful to it and proud of it for growing this human. And also like that it's, you know, paradoxically at a time when it's at like the peak of its power in some ways, that it's also at the low point of its privilege to the world. And maybe the point will, you know, maybe it'll be at a lower point postpartum, right? Because people at least are forgiving, you know, diet culture is forgiving of pregnant people to some extent. But then what happens to the postpartum body? What, you know, the sort of rhetoric around that and what it takes to have privilege in a postpartum body. So, yeah, I think that I'm going to go back and reread that piece and think about that in terms of this journey that I'm on with my body and you know, just trying to trying to be aware of 
any of that nostalgia that comes up, even when I see like pictures around our house, you know, from our wedding or with family members or whatever, where my body was very different. It's like, okay, how can I remember that this body that I have now or that I will have six months from now or whatever is not the same because it has gone through very different things than the body I had then. And, you know, back then I was hoping for a baby one day and wishing and, and in some of those pictures, you know, struggling with infertility and wishing I could have a baby. And so now looking back on that, like trying to remember and keep that in, in context, you know, I think about that a lot when I think about people talking about photo nostalgia, where it's like you're seeing this picture in the snapshot in time of how your body was back then and wishing you were like wishing you looked the same. But what went into creating that body? What was going on in your life then? That What disordered behaviors were you engaging in? How was your mental state? How were you feeling? Or for me, it's not even that pronounced because like those pictures I'm looking back on for were from a time when I was eating intuitively. I was healed from the disordered eating. I was like in a good place. But, you know, still I was wanting to have a baby and not able to. And now I am. So how can I say that? I want my body to look like that again when that's what went along with that body. You can't separate the two. Yeah. It's really interesting. And I, I think that that essay that I wrote would be a very different essay now because I've had more life experience. And I think I would not just include my own story. I would include you know, people who have been through what you're going through right now with pregnancy and postpartum or a chronic illness or grief or whatever it is, because aging is such a part of it. And part of this is is vanity, right? Like we live in a place where beauty standards exist and, and part of that is fine, right? As you know, you get into an anti-diet, they've existed for millennia, but the the piece that's problematic in is anything that that will impair our mental health or our our physical health. Like it's okay to look back and be like, oh, you know what? My hair looked really nice back then. I, I'd like to try that again or whatever it is. Like that's one thing too. But I think, uh, or wow, my, you know, my skin was good or what whatever. Like there's part of that will just be there, sure, in the photo nostalgia, but there's this level of accepting and, and understanding the world in which that was and, and just you know I'm a nostalgic person just in general. I have a tendency to romanticize and, and be nostalgic, but it really doesn't do my mind any favors. You know, it, I think it it keeps me pretty stuck and down and it's a distraction from the the moment that we're in. And, and I think it's really easy to be like, well, that's why things aren't going well now because I don't look like I did back then. Or I, I often would wish that I looked how I did back then in situations I'm having now. And then like you said, with infertility, the funny part is like, I had this real moment this last year where my I was really happy with how my life was and my friends and experiences that I've had that I knew even just a couple of years before because of the level of control and where I was in my eating disorder, I would have never been able to participate in. And I felt really proud about that. So I think that that's important. And then I also get nostalgic sometimes for the level of control that I've been able to have and the level of like kind of what you were saying with work, like, oh man, I used to be so productive or I used to be so, I could do so much or I was so confident or whatever it was. And 
that nostalgia isn't really helpful either. I think we just have to sort of accept where we are with gentleness from food to productivity to creativity to in and trust that, you know, things move in cycles. Oh, I think that's such a good message. Thank you so much for being here. I really loved this conversation and I knew it would be long-winded, but I know you'll come back and we didn't even get to all the questions that I wanted to, but I feel like we covered so much and I'm so happy that we had the conversation that we did. And it's a real moment of in time and a time capsule of you right now being pregnant. And I'm just, I'm so grateful and I'm so excited to hear what comes next for you. And there's so much, you know, there's a new book that you're about to finish. And then next time you're here, we'll, we'll talk about it at length. But right now, can you just let people know where to find you and all the ways to... Well, I'll, I'll let people know and make sure I link to you know everything we talked to, the, the deck and your books and of course, Food Psych and the 10% Happier app. But let me know everything that places that you want people to find you and anything else. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is such a great conversation as always. And yeah, such an interesting time capsule to look back on of my pregnancy and what's going through my head at this point. So people can find me on my website, christyharrison.com. It's a good hub for everything I do. I have other intuitive eating courses there too, like longer, more in-depth ones and one with a community forum for lots of, you know, in per- or uh, not in person, but, but more real-time support. And my books are there, the podcast, everything is there. So I think that's probably the best place to find me. And then you can find Food Psych wherever you're listening to this. Yeah. If you're new to Christy, get obsessed with her. Listen to Food Psych. You've got a robust (laughs) archive of episodes. I've been on there a couple of times. And take her courses, read her books. I just wish everyone in the world would do that. But, you know, that's... (laughs) something I'm working through and I really, you know, need to be more patient on. So I am so grateful you're here. Thank you so, so much. And thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you. Bye. That was my conversation with Christy Harrison. Read her book. It makes a great gift to maybe check out her card deck. I think that would be a really sweet gift to someone who is intuitive eating curious or getting started with it or just really anyone. I think it would be even a great place to start. And I'm really excited about her episode on the 10% Happier podcast with Dan Harris, as well as her intuitive eating course that she's doing with them. And if you want to you know, go deeper, she has a more intensive course. If you want to try any of my journaling workshops, the right kit, the code COSMIC is still working. 22% off everything with that code. The link to my workshops as well as everything I shared about Christy is in the show notes. If you want to get the show notes emailed right to you, the Let It Out letter is a somewhat weekly newsletter that I send and the link to sign up and be part of that is also right here for you. I'm so grateful that you're here. I'm so grateful that you're listening. Please support the sponsors and share this show if it helped you at all. Send it to a friend and let me know where you're listening. Are you folding laundry? Are you driving? Are you cooking? Are you just sitting and listening? Are you taking notes? 
Maybe you are walking. That's my preferred listening place. Send me a selfie. Send me a screenshot. Let me know where you're listening. Tag me on Instagram. I'm at Katie Dalebout or at Let It Out with three T's. The podcast has an Instagram. Follow the podcast and follow Christy. She's Christy Harrison, but the I is a one and we'll link to that. But let us know you're listening all the way to the end. The emoji for this week's episode is, is there a refrigerator emoji? If there is, I don't think there is, but if there is, use that. If not, your favorite item from the kitchen. I'm recording this in my kitchen as we speak, which, you know, is really just my apartment since it's a studio. But I also talked a lot about eating alone standing up in the kitchen. So if you, in fact, are eating standing up right now while listening to this, look around your kitchen and send us that emoji. Comment it on Christy's Instagram, on my Instagram. Let us know you're listening all the way to the end. So grateful that you're here, truly. It's not lost on me how much this medium has given me and allowed me to learn through listening to other podcasts like Food Psych and connect with other hosts like Christy and listeners like you. And it really just means so much. So I appreciate you. Have a great week. And I will talk to you next week with a fresh new episode. My friends Aaron and Noah are back on to talk about their new book, The Plant Clinic and friendship and care and beauty. It's a really lovely, fun, funny conversation. So I will see you next week. 